I invite you to turn now to Romans chapter 13. Paul's letter to the church at Rome and the 13th chapter, and we'll read the final four verses of the chapter, verses 11 through 14. In the first 10 verses of this chapter, Paul has been urging Christians to submit to the government to pay taxes, to love our neighbors. And then he says this in verses 11 through 14. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Father, pray that tonight you would help us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Speak to us of him, speak to us of our duty to him and the privilege it is to be his and to serve him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. These last two verses of Romans chapter 13 in particular are, historically speaking, some perhaps of the most important verses in the New Testament. Let us behave properly as in the day not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, those words don't roll off of our tongues. They don't stick in our memories quite like Psalm 23 or John 3.16 or Romans 8.28. But these two verses have been, in their own way, incredibly influential in the history of Christ's church. Some of you will know the name of St. Augustine, who is a gifted professor and orator living in the Roman Empire in the late 300s and early 400s A.D. You can read his autobiography, which is entitled The Confessions, and you'll find that St. Augustine was a gifted man, a brilliant man even, but he wasn't always a saint. Um, In fact, in addition to being gifted and brilliant, he was enslaved, actually, to his own lusts, sold into bondage to sin, and particularly to sexual sin. Like the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, he had tried both wisdom and folly, and like the preacher, he had tested himself with pleasure But nothing could satisfy him. He eventually became involved in one of the false religions of his day, but there was nothing that could free him from his bondage to sin and to lust. But then he took up a teaching position in the city of Milan in Italy, and there he began to listen intently to the Christian preaching of a great man called Ambrose of Milan. And he listened to him not because of what he was preaching, but because he was such a good speaker. And that's what Augustine did for a living. He taught people how to give speeches. But God began to work on his heart through that preaching and to woo him to Jesus, he said, without him even realizing 
it was happening. He even had a collection of Paul's letters, uh, had been reading through them, and yet he was loath to let go of his sin, loath to let go of his lusts. And he tells in this book, The Confessions, how his lusts whispered to him like voices in his head, tormenting him at how he'd have to leave them behind if he converted to Christ. And so he wrestled in his soul, and he was tormented by his own sin and darkness. And it all came to a head one day when he and his good friend Olypius were entertaining a house guest, a man called Ponticianus, who was a Christian. And this man, who was a Christian, began talking to them about the famed monk, Anthony, and about other monks of their own day who were so dedicated in the way they followed Jesus. And this made Augustine hate himself all the more. And a war began to brew in his soul. Why was he not more like these monks? Why could he not finally leave his sins and follow Christ? What was he waiting for? And let me read to you from his confessions what happened next. And these quotes that I'm going to give you come from... Uh, Augustine's Confessions, the translation of them that was done by Albert C. Outler, uh, which is published in the Nelson's Royal Classics edition. So after he hears about these monks, he is stricken with conviction and wonders why it is that he is not following Jesus like they are. Augustine says this, I seized upon Olypius, that's his friend, and exclaimed, What is the matter with us? What is this? What did you hear? The uninstructed start up and take heaven, and we, with all our learning but so little heart, see where we wallow in flesh and blood. Because others have gone before us, are we ashamed to follow, and not rather ashamed at our not following? I scarcely knew what I said, and in my excitement I flung away from him while he gazed at me in silent astonishment. For I did not sound like myself. My face, eyes, color, tone expressed my meaning more clearly than my words. And then over a few pages, I flung myself down under a fig tree, how I know not, and gave free course to my tears. The streams of my eyes gushed out as an acceptable sacrifice to thee. And not indeed in these words, but to this effect, I cry to thee, and thou, O Lord, how long? How long, O Lord, wilt thou be angry forever? Oh, remember not against us our former iniquities, for I felt that I was still enthralled by them. I sent up these sorrowful cries, How long, how long, tomorrow and tomorrow? Why not now? Why not this very hour make an end to my uncleanness? I was saying these things and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart, when suddenly I heard the voice of a boy or a girl, I know not which, coming from the neighboring house, chanting over and over again, pick it up, read it, pick it up, read it. Immediately I ceased weeping and began most earnestly to think whether it was usual for children in some kind of game to sing such a song, but I could not remember ever having heard the like. So damning the torrent of my tears, I got to my feet, for I could not but think that this was a divine command to open the Bible and read the first passage I should light upon. So I quickly returned to the bench where Olypius was sitting, for there I had put down the apostle's book when I had left there. I snatched it up, 
opened it, and in silence read the paragraph on which my eyes first fell. Not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. I wanted to read no further, nor did I need to, for instantly, as the sentence ended, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty, and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. And so this wonderfully gifted but tormented and sinful man was brought finally through to Christ. He was finally saved, and he eventually became one of the most prolific Christian writers and one of the most brilliant theologians that the church has ever known. And indeed, Augustine is still widely read and appreciated by Christians the world over even to this day. But did you notice the passage on which his eyes fell when he heeded the exhortation from the children at play to pick it up, read it? Did you notice the passage that the Holy Spirit used to finally bring this long straying sinner to the redemption which is in Christ Jesus? It was the very passage that's open on our laps tonight, isn't it? The last two verses of Romans 13. And every time I read them, I cannot help but remember how God used them so mightily in the 300s A.D. to save a man who would eventually become one of the greatest men of God. These very same words of the apostle that we have open in front of us this evening. The Bible's powerful, isn't it? God used these very words to save a man who was a lost sinner, and maybe he'll do so even again tonight. In fact, let me just say, adults and children, if you're here this evening and you have not yet come to Jesus Christ in faith, let me read these last two verses to you again directly as an exhortation for you where you are this evening. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe someone will do that for the very first time tonight. But I also want you to notice that these verses in their context here at the end of Romans 13 are actually addressed to people who have already put on the Lord Jesus Christ, or at least already professed to have done so. These are words written to people who have already professed to be believers in Jesus, because this entire letter of Romans was written, chapter 1, verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, and saints are believers. And even here in verse 11, Paul tells his readers that salvation is nearer to them now than when they believed, implying that they have, in fact, believed, or that at least they have professed to have believed. So this passage though God used it marvelously in the life of an unconverted man, was written originally to professing Christians. And so it has something to say to us all tonight, doesn't it? Even if we are long past that conversion point at which Romans 13 met Augustine. But you'll also notice that if this passage was written to professing Christians, Paul has particularly in mind a group of church members who are not quite what they should be. People who are perhaps backslidden. Paul is concerned that some in the Roman church have gotten spiritually 
drowsy because he says in verse 11 that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Enough of this spiritual slumber, Paul says. Wake up. Be on the alert. Don't be caught napping for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And I take the second half of verse 11 to be talking about final salvation. Final salvation is nearer to us now than when we believe. Christ's coming again and the resurrection of the dead and the redemption of our body and the perfection of our souls and the new heavens and the new earth, all these things that encompass our final salvation are today nearer to us than when we believed, nearer to us than when we initially came to Christ. And they're growing nearer every day. And the point Paul is making is that when Christ comes... We don't want to be caught napping. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I wonder if this exhortation hits home for anyone tonight, if there's anyone here this evening who is falling into spiritual slumber in recent weeks or months. Anyone here who knows you're not what you once were. You've allowed sin patterns to creep in and even to become normal and even to be coddled, that you should have been long past by now. Maybe for some of you, the Bible has become more and more a closed book. Prayer has petered out significantly. And worst of all, you may have even become fairly content about it all. Like the student who keeps nodding off during algebra class and finally just decides she's not going to fight it anymore. And just puts her head down on the desk and gives in. Wake up, Paul says. Morning is dawning. Christ is coming. He's almost here. And so it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Wake up, he says in verse 11. And verse 12, change your clothes. Wake up and change your clothes. Isn't that what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12? Wake up, verse 11, and then verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Did you hear the dressing metaphors there? We are to lay aside certain behaviors, like we lay aside clothing when we get up in the morning, and then we are to put on other behaviors in their place, put on something else in place of those other garments, just like we do when we get up in the morning. And so we must not only wake up, But we must also change clothes. It's good to wake up. It's good to become spiritually alert once more. But when you awaken from your slumber, you must also, verse 12, take off the old smelly clothes that you slept in and put on that which is proper for walking in the daylight, right? Or maybe closer to Paul's metaphor, when we become alert to Christ, when we awaken, come to our senses, We must tear from our bodies the kinds of lurid clothing that people wear at night to the club, on the street corner, in their boyfriend's bedroom. And in their place, we must put on the armor of light. We must put on clothing that is appropriate to the day. Wake up, he says in verse 11, and change Close, verse 12, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
And of course, the changing of clothes is just a metaphor. There's not a physical suit of armor, right, that we must put on as Christians. That's just a symbol. And the things that we must take off, the things that we must lay aside are not physical clothes, but deeds of darkness, verse 12. And then in verse 13, Paul goes on to describe some of the deeds in particular that he's concerned about in the church at Rome. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Does it surprise you that Paul should be writing to a group of Christians, professing Christians, to a church body, and that he should have to warn these people against carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity and sensuality? You might think, well, those aren't the people that need to hear this, and neither are we. I wonder if it surprises you that Paul would talk to a group of Christians like this. It shouldn't surprise you. Because for one thing, this is the same apostle who told the church at Corinth that we must test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. This is the same apostle, in other words, who understands that not everyone who claims Christ actually belongs to Christ. Not everyone who believes really believes. And some of the folks that Paul was warning in the church of Rome may have fallen into that category. And so may some in the church at Pleasant Ridge. Some of us may only be fooling ourselves about our salvation. We've believed in our minds, but we remove our hearts far from the Lord. And if that's us, we must wake up before it's too late. But let me also say that Paul's concern about wine, women, and song in the church at Rome is surely also based on the fact that Paul knows and has stated at length in chapter 7 how conflicted even true Christians can sometimes be in their souls. He knows how easy it is for all of us to find ourselves not practicing what we would like to do, but rather doing the very thing we hate, Romans 7.15. Isn't that true sometimes? Not practicing what we would like to do, but doing the very thing we hate. And so it's not out of the realm of possibility that several people in the church of Rome and several people perhaps under the sound of my voice, true Christians, may find themselves tied up in the very kinds of things that Paul speaks about here in verse 13. Carousing, partying, hanging out, often into the wee hours with people and in places with which we have no business. We can carouse in our own homes. We can carouse at the club. We can carouse at our friend's apartment. We can carouse when we're away on a business trip. And if this is you, spending time with people and in places and at times that you have no business, let me say to you, the night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. And then there's drunkenness which in our culture can come not only from alcohol, but also from drugs, whether prescription or street. And it's easy to get tangled up in this, too. Maybe not so easy to admit it to others, but it's easy to get tangled up in. And if this is you, you must awaken from your stupor. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, Paul says. And what about sexual promiscuity? And sensuality, which were Augustine's particular pitfalls. 
Sexual promiscuity and sensuality can be physical, of course, and for someone in this room it may be, even in recent days, and I urge you to repent if that's you and flee to Christ for cleansing. But far more subtly, sexual promiscuity and sensuality can be, as Jesus says, looking at a woman with lust for her, in which case you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Does this touch men, any of our internet or television or newsstand habits? Ladies, does it touch your internet or television or reading habits? Let us behave properly as in the day. Let us lay these things aside like the filthy garments that they are clinging to us and making us unclean. Wake up, Paul says, and change clothes. That is Paul's message to us tonight. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Not in strife and jealousy. Yes, just when some of us might have thought we were off the hook. Just when some of us might have been saying to ourselves, I can't believe these are Christians Paul's talking about. Christians who get caught up in drinking and drugs and parties and sex. Just when we begin to think like the Pharisee in Jesus' story that we are not like other people, Paul goes and pulls out strife and jealousy out of our dirty laundry basket and puts it in front of us on the table. Some of us may have been walking around wearing these tawdry rags as well. We may think that strife and jealousy is is a more presentable kind of sin than the racy clothing worn by those other people. But strife and jealousy are just as seamy, just as revealing, just as repulsive as these other sins. And I wonder again if some of us have been wearing these rags about town, constantly bickering in our homes, unwilling to forgive Mr. So-and-so, always talking about our rival behind her back, looking for opportunities to criticize other people, gossiping at their faults, bitter towards certain folks and giving them the cold shoulder, jealous, selfish, constantly cross about something or someone. And isn't it high time, as the King James puts it, isn't it high time that we wake up from this fitful sleep? Isn't it time that we changed clothes? The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. And let me just say that if strife and jealousy can be listed right there alongside drunkenness and promiscuity, then so can a lot of other things as well. Dishonesty, whether it's in our speech or our business practices, theft, covetousness and greed and stinginess, disobedience to parents, pride, laziness, whether spiritual or physical laziness. All of these things are like dirty clothes that we must wake up and take off and lay aside. And I wonder if we'll do that tonight. I wonder how many of us will be startled awake tonight And having seen what we look like in the mirror, we'll begin to make some changes. 
And note that the change Paul is calling for has to do not only with taking off our dirty clothes, but with putting on clean ones. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And then in verse 13, Paul reminds us of some of the things we must take off. And in verse 14, he tells us what, or rather who, we must put on. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That may not be what we have expected to hear We may have thought Paul would say, take off promiscuity and put on sexual purity. Take off drunkenness and be filled with the Spirit. Take off carousing with your mates and get involved in the church. Take off strife and put on peace. Take off the bad habits and replace them with good habits. And Paul does talk like this elsewhere, at length, in fact, in the book of Ephesians. But here, Paul does not tell us so much to put on new behaviors, but to put on a person. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? I did some reading on this, and there were a few different possibilities. John Stott, in his classic commentary on Romans, suggests that the idea may be that we are to clothe ourselves with Christ's character. That put on the Lord Jesus Christ means something like put on his behavior. Put his character on in place of your own. Put on his compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Stott suggests, quoting those traits which Paul tells us to put on in Colossians 3. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ may mean put on behavior that looks like his behavior. In fact, two other commentators, Adam Clark and F.F. Bruce, both point out that the words put on were often used in the ancient world to refer to acting or, or playing the part of another person. Clark says this, The mode of speech is taken from the custom of stage players. They assumed the name and garments of the one whose character they were to act and endeavored as closely as possible to imitate him in their spirit, words, and actions. And people still do that today, right? And so if you're going to do a stage production, you would have to put on Romeo or put on Juliet or put on Macbeth. And in the same way in the Christian life, we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must seek to imitate him as closely as possible. And not just to imitate him like a play actor, of course, but to actually become like him. To so put him on that we actually start to take on his characteristics in real life. So that's one possibility of what Paul means when he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on his godly character. Take his spiritual clothing and wear it yourself. But then Stott also suggests that in the context of Romans 13, Paul may be suggesting that we put on Christ more as armor than as clothing, that we put him on more as protection than as adornment. And we can see that hinted at in verse 12, can't we? Put on the armor of light. 
which is explained in verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So maybe he's saying put on the Lord Jesus Christ as your armor. And Stott points out that the Jerusalem Bible, which is another Bible translation, even translates verse 14 this way, let your armor be the Lord Jesus Christ. So that may be the idea behind this wonderful phrase at the beginning of verse 14. Take off all your ragged ragged deeds, verse 13, and put on Jesus instead, and like armor, he will protect you from sin. And then William Hendrickson, in his commentary on Romans, suggests that to put on the Lord Jesus Christ means that, quote, having laid aside the garment of sin, now deck yourselves more and more with the robe of Christ's righteousness. And what he means is the robe of justification, the robe of Christ which covers our sins and makes us clean in God's sight, even though we're not really clean underneath. And we all need to do that, don't we? Because as we try hard to do the other, hard as we try to put on Christ's character, and we must put on Christ's character, hard as we try to take Christ as our protection from sin and temptation, and we must do that, the fact of the matter is that we all struggle to do so. If we didn't, Paul would have had no reason to write these words of exhortation to the sleepers in the church in Rome. We all have to sometimes say with Paul, for what I am doing, I do not understand, Romans 7, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Don't we all have to make that confession far more often than we would like? We're all still sinners, and so we must not only put on the Lord Jesus Christ by means of acting out his character in our own lives, but also and continually by means of being cloaked in his righteousness for all the times that we don't. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be saved over and over again. We're justified once and for all upon our initial coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But maybe Paul wants us to continue to appropriate that justification, to continually remind ourselves of it by continually reminding ourselves each time we wake up with dirty clothes on that we must rely wholly and solely upon Christ's righteousness to cover us before a holy God. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ as your justification, as your covering. So what does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I presented you with three possibilities. Put on his character like clothing so that you look and act more and more like him. Put him on as your armor, as your protection from stumbling back into sin. And put him on as your justification, as your covering, as your robe of righteousness, covering all the stains upon your life and making you clean in the sight of God. Paul may have had one of these in mind more than the others, or he may have left the statement open-ended so that we'd have to think about all three. But the main thing I would have you notice is that whatever it means exactly to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our only hope and refuge when we wake up after a night of sin and feel the familiar guilt and shame of the morning after. You know what I mean by the morning after? You don't have to have committed physical adultery to understand the shame that an adulterer should feel. Because if you've ever been truly convicted of sin, whatever the sin, 
if you've ever been truly broken, truly undone, truly ashamed by your evil deeds, then you know what it feels like on the morning after. You know what it feels like to have committed spiritual, spiritual adultery against the Lord and to have woken up in the wrong bed, embarrassed and ashamed and dirty and not nearly so happy in your sin as you thought you'd be. And when you finally awaken to your promiscuity, what is the solution? Not just to lay aside your dirty garments and take a shower and never go back to that bed and that lover again. That's essential, of course. But it's only half the task. For you must not only lay aside the deeds of darkness, but you must also put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you do that, you are fleeing not simply to a list of new habits and better morals and fresh resolves, helpful as those can be. More than that, you are putting on, you are fleeing to a person. He is the one who can cover your guilt with the robe of his righteousness. He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is your armor and your fortress and your strong tower. He is the one in whose likeness you're being transformed as you put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And so you must put on not merely some religious reforms when you fall into sin. You must put on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. You must take him as your own. Like Augustine, for the very first time, And you must continue to do so day by day by day until that great and final day does eventually dawn. The old commentator Matthew Henry sums this all up beautifully as he comments on the words, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Quote, put on the righteousness of Christ for justification. Be found in him as a man is found in his clothes. Put on the priestly garments of the elder brother, that in them you may obtain the blessing. Put on the spirit and grace of Christ for sanctification. Jesus Christ is the best clothing for Christians to adorn themselves with, to arm themselves with. It is decent, distinguishing, dignifying, defending. Without Christ, we are naked, deformed. All other things are rags, fig leaves, a sorry shelter. God has provided us coats of skins, large, strong, warm, and durable. By baptism, we have in profession put on Christ. Let us do it in truth and sincerity. The Lord Jesus Christ, put him on as Lord to rule you, as Jesus to save you, and in both as Christ, anointed and appointed by the Father to this ruling, saving work. End of quote. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you done that? And are you continuing to do that? Is Jesus everything to you? Is he your clothing? Is he your armor? Is he your example? Is he your Lord? Is he your great high priest? Is he your closest friend? Oh, I urge you and I urge myself tonight, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, verse 14, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Make no provision for the flesh. If God is awakening you tonight, if he is blowing away the haze and bringing you back out of your slumber, not only must you wake up 
And not only must you change clothes and put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but you must leave your bed of sin and never go back to it. You must not allow yourself to be continually tempted again and again in the same ways. You must, as Jesus put it, cut off the hand that makes you stumble. Make no provision for the flesh. So if that website or that television program or that friend's apartment or that topic of conversation or that music or that aisle at the convenience store or that too late hour of the night is a continual source of temptation and sin and feeding of your flesh, be done with it forever. Be done with it forever and pray like crazy that Jesus will be your armor against it. By God's grace, Augustine did that. And his life was utterly transformed and eminently useful to the Lord. And the same can be true of you. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone And the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts.